Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. And welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each episode, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series for, as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode, along with some tidbits about the cast and crew. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to this week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at anthologypod.com, and if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at obsessiveviewer, send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com, or call and leave a voicemail at 317-762-6099. And if you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes search results. This week on the podcast, I'll be discussing Elegy. It's the 20th episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on February 19th, 1960 on CBS. I'll also be sharing my thoughts on the 1958 film Queen of Outer Space, starring Zsa Zsa Gabor, and written by Charles Beaumont. But first, I just want to mention real quickly, uh, Shocktober and Irvington. If you happen to be listening to this in the Indianapolis area, Shocktober in Irvington is a one-night event screening of short horror films from local filmmakers here in Indianapolis, presented by my podcast, The Obsessive Viewer. Basically, we're renting out the Irving Theater for the night to screen short horror films, interview the filmmakers, and raffle off DVDs, Blu-rays, and gift cards to businesses in the Irvington area. It's our third year doing it, and it's always such a fun time. This year is going to be October 14th, 2016, and you can find more information and a link to buy tickets at shocktoberinirvington.com. Also, before I get to my review of Elegy, I just want to mention that uh, a couple weeks ago I mentioned that I had bought the um, Twilight Zone, the Fifth Dimension Complete Series box set on DVD, and I just uh, I just finished watching the uh, pilot episode, Where Is Everybody, with commentary by Earl Holloman, and man, that is such a fun commentary. He seems like such a friendly and personable guy. And he had a lot of, he had a lot of things to say about his, his working relationship with Rod Serling and how he got the part. He talks about how he just basically ran into Serling, um, outside of a C- CVS, I think. And they were, they got to talking and then he's like, Hey, I guess Serling told him that <clears throat> he had the script for a pilot for a sci-fi show and he wanted him to read for it because they wanted to get a bigger name actor for it but he was too expensive. <laughs> so it's, it's such a fun listen. And he, like he doesn't, um, he doesn't shy away from the parts of the episode that didn't work for him. There's several times in the episode where he's like, yeah, that didn't really work for me. Or I wish I would have had another shot to, to handle this. And it's such a, it's such a good commentary. And I'm really looking forward to digging more into the commentary tracks and the, the, um, lecture, tracks that are all over this dvd set and um so yeah i i'll 
be digging through the box set as I go along, and I'll probably be mentioning here and there some of the commentary tracks or special features I watch um, along the way. Um, okay, so having said all that, let's get into my review of Elegy. Of course, I'll start us off with a reading of the plot summary, courtesy, courtesy of the Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Sikri. <clears throat> and of course, this review in this episode will be spoiler-heavy, of course, so bear that in mind. So here's the plot summary for Elegy. Their ship almost out of fuel, astronauts Weber, Myers, and Kirby set down on a remote asteroid and run smack into a mystery. The place is quite Earth-like, down to the buildings and the people, but no one moves. The men witness a number of inanimate tableau, a full marching band, a man being elected mayor, a card table at which one of the players holds four aces, a romantic liaison in a hotel suite, complete with violinists, and a homely woman winning a beauty contest. The three are startled when they find someone who does move, Jeremy Wickwire, caretaker of the place. He explains that the entire asteroid is an exclusive cemetery where the dear departed can realize their greatest wish in life after they die. He serves the men wine and asks what their greatest wish would be. All three rep- reply that they would like to be on their ship, headed for home. Too late, they realize that Wickwire, who is a robot, has poisoned their drinks, having thus ensured the continuing tranquility of happy glades. Wickwire installs the inanimate, embalmed figures of the three men back in their ship. So, Elegy stars Cecil Kellaway as Jeremy Wickwire. This is his first of two Twilight Zone appearances. Next, we'll see him is all the way in season four in the episode Passage on the Lady Anne. Um, also starring in this episode is Kevin Hagen as Captain James Weber. First, this is his first of two Twilight Zone appearances. Next is uh, see all the way in season five, uh, the episode You Drive. Jeff Morrow plays Kurt Myers. This is his only original Twilight Zone episode. However, he was in an episode of the 1980s Twilight Zone um, season one, episode 24, titled A Day in Beaumont slash The Last Defender of Camelot. Um, he played the character H.G. Orson in the segment A Day in Beaumont. Uh, rounding out the cast in this episode for the three astronauts is Don Dubbins as Peter Kirby. This is his only Twilight Zone episode. However, he is in, or he did appear in one episode of the other, um, another sci-fi anthology series, One Step Beyond. And writer for this episode is Charles Beaumont, who, uh, this episode was actually based on a short story that he wrote. Um, the story was first published in Imagination in February 1953. And I, I meant to look it up and, and give it a read, but I didn't get around to it. But I'll talk a little bit about the differences um, a little bit here in the in the trivia section of this review. Director for this episode, making his second directorial um, appearance on in the Twilight Zone, his second of nine actually, is Douglas Hayes. Uh, we previously saw his work in uh, the episode "And When the Sky Was Opened," which I covered in episode six of the podcast. And it's funny because in that episode I mentioned that. Um, his next one will be uh, Elegy, which is uh, toward the end of season one. And I'm, <laughs> I made the stupid joke that given my hiatus from the podcast that I had, the long hiatus, um, I'll probably get to that in 2019. But um, 
here I am. So awesome. Um, anyway, so director, uh, Douglas Hayes, his next episode of, um, the twilight zone is going to be season one, episode 31, the chaser. Um, which if you guys remember in, and when the sky was opened, I believe I was, I was a pretty, I was a good fan of that episode. It was, it was an interesting concept and also had to do with, um, uh, a few different astronauts, ironically enough. If you guys can't tell, I, this is actually the third episode in a row I've recorded in one sitting. So bear with me here if I'm, if I'm a little off my game, um, Anyway, uh, so here are my feelings as a first-time viewer of Elegy for uh, for this podcast. Anyway, right off the bat, this episode just and, and this isn't really a fair comparison because this actually came out long after this episode, obviously, or several years after this episode. But right off the bat, this episode just reminded me of something I would have seen in Star Trek: The Original Series. Um, there's a sense of exploration that just makes me think Star Trek, and it works in its favor because it's because there's such an air of mystery in this episode from the outset. And it's something that isn't necessarily, it's not anything that's really spoon fed to us. There's nothing like spoon fed to us except for kind of in the third act. But in the first two acts, it's such, it's such a mystery driven story. And I'm, and I was really along for the ride um, from the outset. And it was really interesting to see them see the astronauts kind of, discover what is going on on this asteroid. And along the way, um, when they first, when they first see the first like still man, there's, there's some good tidbits about what earth is like in their time because they, uh, let's see in the, in the mythology of this episode, um, humanity had a quote unquote total war that started in 1985. And then they had, fired off, uh, or they had, um, left earth in 2185. So <clears throat> there's some good world building in this, in this, uh, in this scene, basically they make reference to the total war and immediately from there, it made me think that this is going to be another cold war cautionary tale, some similar to, um, third from the sun. And, I mean, I was somewhat, somewhat right. It's, it's a very cynical, very cynical, um, story. And I'll get to that in, in a bit, but it's a very cynical view of humanity, really. Um, and I, and I just, I really like the concept of them finding humans just perfectly still. And I love how the audience is just as confused as the astronauts. It kind of harkens back to something I said in my review of The Last Flight, how there's, this air of mystery in the, in the plot, in the dialogue. And it's kind of like, um, the audience is just along for the ride <laughs> with this mystery. And it's, it's really refreshing to me to be completely in the dark in this instance. And I was just incredibly curious about what it could all possibly mean. And then once I, when I got around to rewatching it for the second time for the purposes of this podcast, it, like rewatching it gives it such a creepy tone because it's so creepy to me to think that these astronauts are just wandering around interacting with all of these dead people as they investigate the asteroid. It's, it's really, it kind of makes your skin crawl a little bit, but I mean, to the episode's disadvantage, um, 
the characters aren't distinguishable at all to me. Um, we've got Kirby, Weber, and Myers. And the only reason that I can really, um, the only reason I had those names in my notes was because Serling references them by name and, uh, by all three names in the closing narration. Like I've, I've seen the episode twice. Can't even tell you which one is which, which I think is a problem, but it's not a big problem because the story of Elegy is more about the, uh, pessimistic view of humanity that the, that the theme is all about. And I don't know that, I mean, that might be a little bit of a cop out cause I want to feel for the characters in these stories. Like I, like I want to feel for these characters. I want to have an, an experience where I'm watching, um, Decker in the last flight. I want to go on a journey with these characters. And that's something that I'm just not really, couldn't really latch onto in elegy, unfortunately. And, uh, it's also worth mentioning that you, <laughs> And this is so nitpicking, and I don't mean to nitpick, but you can see the slight imperfections and movements in the actors. It's actually it was actually a struggle um, in filming, according to the my research, that it was a struggle to film them because you can clearly see movements and everything. So a kind of workaround for that is Douglas Douglas Hayes basically kept the camera moving around whenever there were still still bodies in the in the. Uh, the frame and they didn't use any dummies or anything. They were all actual humans. And as I said, you can, you can see the slight imperfections and movements of the actors, but I mean, really it's, it's, it's so nitpicky that bringing them up, you can't bring them up as a fault for the episode at all. Um, cause I was still along for the ride. So the reveal of the big crowd at the mayoral, uh, inauguration is really, um, intense and, and it's really, uh, effective as a surprise because at that point the, the episode is slowly revealing more and more as the astronauts investigate their new surroundings. So first they encounter a dog, then a man, and then another man, um, uh, fishing, which that's the part that kind of made my skin crawl a little bit because they try to talk to him and he like kind of falls over and it just, it just, is unsettling to think that this is a dead person. Um, it's kind of like, it's kind of literally like these astronauts are just walking over graves essentially. Um, but after that they they encounter a band that has music playing through, through loudspeakers. And then the camera just, just sweeps over to this crowd, this large crowd, um, watching, uh, this mayor, um, be inaugurated into office. And, it's a really, it's a really worthwhile, um, reveal. Unfortunately, in that scene, um, after they're, when they're kind of discussing what, um, uh, what they're doing is that, I don't know. It, unfortunately, the characters kind of come up with a theory in that scene that was, at least when I was first watching the episode the first time, that theory that they came up with was a lot more interesting to me than the actual episode that we got. Um, again, that's when I first watched it. I warmed up to it on the second viewing. But the idea that they're on a planet where time is moving really slowly um, is just really interesting to me. Or I guess it would be asteroid. But it, regardless, it's really interesting to me. So they kind of posit this idea that they're on this planet where time is moving incrementally slowly. And that idea, I don't know. I, I found myself really wanting to see 
the the episode be about the world suspended in time moments before the world ended in nuclear winter. I think that that would have been a much interesting or a very interesting episode centered around, you know, Cold War fears. Um, just imagine how interesting the episode would have been if the astronauts learned they were on some alternate Earth or maybe maybe time traveled and they're under the impression that time is slowed to a crawl only because it's all leading up to annihilation. Um, that just would have been really eerie to think that they're in this suspended state, like the last moment on Earth where where peace was uh, a possibility or right before everyone was annihilated, complete annihilation. I think it would have been really interesting to see that. But the whole space mortuary thing is still a very interesting thread. And... It's incredibly interesting, actually, and it's eerie in its own right. As I said, when they're interacting with all of these dead people without knowing that they're dead, that just really got under my skin on the second viewing. And um, let's see. So I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. So I'll, let's go back. The, the beauty pageant. That scene in particular was really creepy to me as well. And it's also funny to go even farther back. The fact that they even split up is kind of funny to me. Because, I mean, come on, something weird is going on on this asteroid. Don't split up. But fortunately, nothing bad happened to them as a result of that. But um, anyway, so about the beauty pageant, the winner, <laughs> the winner has glasses on, which, I mean, obviously, it's a classic example of filmmaking showing us a character that isn't traditionally beautiful, despite being played by an attractive performer. Uh, basically, basically, it's Hollywood ugly with quotes around it. Um, but showing this, showing this shot of this beauty pageant winner wearing glasses and kind of not being the traditional beauty pageant woman, that says so much about this character and her, her hopes and dreams and what she wanted most. And that's, that's also to the detriment of the episode itself because just by seeing a shot of this completely still person, I got much more character development out of development out of her and her character than I did of any of the three astronauts that are on screen for a majority of this episode. So I don't know, but I really did like the way that the astronaut, whichever one it is that's at the pageant scene, I loved him freaking out. And I, I liked his big outburst of, of anger and frustration and confusion and fear. I, I liked that scene. But again, um, it's followed up by the reveal of Wickwire. And I gotta say, I hate, I hate, I hate a strong word. Hate a strong word, guys. I really dislike the way that they introduced Wickwire. Um, and I, and I'll go ahead and say it. I hate the music that plays when, <laughs> when Wickwire turns to watch the astronaut leave. Um, like the scene reveals to us that they aren't alone and, that, and that's, that's okay, fine. That's a good way to, I understand that that's how, um, that, that that's the end of the first act and they needed to get people, um, invested in the story and everything. And I, I understand that that's ushering us into the second act. Um, but the music is played for such, it, it's played as comedy. It's, it's kind of a comedic kind of like melody and it clashes so hard with the twist on screen and 
I don't know. If I had my druthers, it would have been so much more effective if the first time we see Wickwire was on the porch with the newspaper. Like that scene, like imagine seeing that scene without seeing Wickwire anywhere else in the episode. And they go up to the guy on the porch with the newspaper covering his face and they, they like ask him, uh, like, do you mind if I, if we come in? And then the surprise of him lowering the newspaper, newspaper and speaking to them, that would have been a really effective, effective sequence. But unfortunately we know that he's there because the end of the first act showed it to us. And that's, that's kind of a, that's kind of a shame. Um, I think it would have been better, um, if that was the first scene that we saw him. So about Wickwire, um, I was really curious, um, during his, once he was introduced, I was really curious if Wickwire was going to turn out to be this, be another example of death personified. Um, we've seen that in a few episodes in the past and I was really curious if they were going to go that route again. Maybe, maybe this asteroid is supposed to be purgatory for them. Um, and he's ushering them into death, like in the, like in the hitchhiker or in, um, I guess, I guess one for the angels as well. Just any, any representation of death personified. So having seen that in so many episodes in the past or seeing that recently in the first season, I was really glad that that wasn't the case. And I I mean, I was still kind of left wondering if he was autonomous or programmed to destroy all humans who land there. It wasn't very clear on that, but he clearly has a certain perspective of humans. And I appreciated that about, um, the character. And what I also noticed was that there was a strange repetition of the astronauts not remembering Wickwire's name. Um, there's a few instances where they they address him by name, but then they stutter or they um, mispronounce it. And I didn't catch this the first time. I didn't I didn't understand the significance of it the first time. But having watched it a second time, I think that it's supposed to represent man's disregard for other people. Um, they don't remember his name because they don't bother to commit it to memory because they're men. And in, in the world of this story, uh, mankind is a blight on the universe, essentially. Um, that's kind of the severe pessimistic view that this episode takes. And maybe I'm reading into, reading a little too much into it or reading into something that isn't there. And maybe it was just supposed to be just a comedic thing, a lighthearted thing to lighten up the tension a little bit. But if you view it with that context, it's, it presents a pretty interesting angle, um, to the episode into this final act and, uh, the surprises at the end. And so, and so as soon as Wickwire asks them, where they would like to be and what they what they want more than anything, basically. I, I mean, I knew exactly where the he- episode was heading, but I find the why more interesting. Um, the men were already assuming that they were going to stay there because really they had no other choice. They were out of fuel. They they could breathe on this asteroid. They figured, okay, well, they just assumed they'd spend the rest of their days there or until someone could come get them. Um, whereas Wickwire is the caretaker and he's in charge of making sure the bodies aren't disturbed. And what I picked up on the second time around was that the astronauts disturbed the dead and maybe that's why Wickwire killed them. Um, that's kind of the impression I, I got a little bit, but, um, also, you know, his, uh, Wickwire's line at the end kind of sums up why he did it. Um, 
which I'll get to in, in just a moment, because I want to mention that it's really telling that the one astronaut, again, don't know which one he is, don't know his name, but it's really telling that the one astronaut that realizes they've been poisoned, like he's the first one to realize that they've been poisoned and they're about to die. It's really telling that when he realizes that, he lashes out at the other astronauts. He basically screams at them that he warned them that he that this man wasn't trustworthy and that they shouldn't trust him. And this this outburst really supports the theme that no peace can be achieved while while man reigns, basically. And this is followed up by um, Wickwire responding to them, asking why he just killed them. Um, his line, and it's it's the high point of the episode for me, is that uh, he says. Because you are here and you are men, and while there are men, there can be no peace. And that is the perfect summation of the episode as a whole and, and the theme that it's trying to, in the theme and story that it's telling. And the way that the shot is composed, it's ex, it, it's an extremely tight shot of Wickwire's face as he says it. And I mean, it's almost as if he's speaking to us as the audience, um, saying that, like, hey, you know, um, there can be no peace because, you know, humanity is terrible. So it's a very cynical view. And, um, I mean, I guess that, that leads directly into, um, my thoughts on the cultural subtext slash theme of the episode. So the episode takes the cold war cautionary tale backdrop that we've gotten in past episodes. And it spins such a clinical or not clinical, but a, a very cynical story about, destruction wrought by man. And it's a really interesting base to create a story from. Uh, I like the implication that peace isn't achievable while humans are around. I mean, it's it's a really, really bleak, really bleak outlook and really bleak uh, thing to end an episode on and, and to build an episode around. Um, but I mean, <laughs> maybe it's my cynicism speaking, but given the history of mankind, just in general, it doesn't really take a total cynic to get you to agree that it's, I mean, it's kind of a possibility or you can, you can kind of rationalize the actions of Wickwire and, and the viewpoint of the episode. You, you can see where it's coming from. Um, and also the idea that this elegy, the, not elegy, but the happy glades, um, the concept of it and, and the idea that there's this asteroid that, that rich people, have their um their bodies placed in in their optimal or their favorite or happiest moments is is a really interesting concept and i and there are references in the end um where wickwire talks about happy glades and and the business of it and i mean i feel like they could build they could build an entire movie around this concept um i i think that that would be really interesting to see um, this, this, uh, final resting place, science fiction, science fiction space resting place thing is, is really interesting to me. And also this episode kind of, um, harkens back a little bit to the lonely. Um, both episodes are about, uh, asteroids and, and, uh, uh, places that they, uh, people put people. That's a stretch. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know. There's a better way to articulate that, but both in, both involve the future, both involve, um, places like in the lonely, the asteroid is, is a prison and here in elegy, it's a, it's a cemetery. 
How about I get to trivia? That that sound good, guys? All right, trivia for this episode. <laughs> Again, it's now midnight, and I've recorded three episodes. Ah, my voice is hoarse. Anyway, um, trivia for the episode. Um, inside the spaceship, the, some of the equipment um, that was some of the equipment in the, in the set was originally used in Forbidden Planet, and uh, which also for, Forbidden Planet featured Earl Holloman, of course. And uh, in the equipment also shows up in a number of other Twilight Zone episodes. And also the set of the room of the frozen mare addressing the crowd had been used in uh, the Purple Testament as the lobby of an army hospital, which I just talked about last week. <sighs> and then uh, apparently that will be used again as a hallway for a college campus in Long Live Walter Jameson, which I will be reviewing here in about a month. Let's see. Oh, also, uh, it's the same set that was used in the 16mm Shrine as uh, Barbara Trenton's house. And so in the original short story, there was a a motionless car race set. Um, Apparently, Charles Beaumont... Uh, was really interested in like one of his, one of his big hobbies, I guess was, was auto racing. Like he was a big fan of auto racing and uh, he was, he was not pleased that Douglas Hayes replaced that um, car race set with a beauty pageant, which is funny because the beauty pageant is um, widely considered the most memorable part of the episode. Um, And part of Douglas Hayes's, um, rationale for not including the car race is that it's hard to show cars motionless cars um as if they're suspended in in time or suspend or they're frozen so when you when you have a car that is uh stationary it just looks like it's parked it doesn't look like it's you know been frozen in time and so the the he sidestepped the struggles of trying to put that to film by making a beauty pageant sequence. All right, and to kind of round out trivia, the title "Elegy" refers to a song or poem expressing sorrow for one who had who has died. I'd never really heard the term before. I thought that was interesting. All right, so closing out my thoughts on "Elegy." Uh, overall, I thought the concept was clever. I will give the episode that, but despite its interesting premise and the great mystery aspect of the first act and the kind of cynical approach to, or the cynical view of humanity, and uh, which could which was also a reflection of the time, I'm sure, of, of some sensibilities during the Cold War, but um, I forgot to mention that in the cultural subtext. But anyway, despite its interesting premise and the great mystery aspect of the first act and of the cynical view of humanity... <laughs> I was more interested in it as a concept than as a story. Part of that may be because I was instantly interested in the theory that I had halfway through my first viewing. Um, that theory that or really me latching onto the theory that one of the astronauts posited in the episode, basically where time is just at a standstill. Um, that's, that's a possibility for why I didn't connect with this episode that much. But even so, I was left feeling that although the theme and deep, deeper meaning is clear and something that I latched onto as a viewer, the ending itself wasn't as surprising or effective as the reveal that, that what they're, that the asteroid they're on is just a, a space cemetery, basically. Um, the ending wasn't as surprising or effective as that, as that reveal. And 
I don't know. Having said that, the, the episode's cynical approach to its view of humanity and the subtle ways that the astronauts' behavior support that theme are really interesting elements and really incredibly interesting, actually. Um, and left me with a lot to think about. However, one of the biggest shortcomings of the entire episode is that I couldn't latch on to any of the characters. Or I, I, there was nothing about the three male leads, the th- or the three leads, the three lead characters that really spoke to me as a viewer. I couldn't latch on to these characters. I, I couldn't differentiate who they were from each other. And maybe that's kind of the point. Maybe they're supposed to be just representatives of, of the human race, but it's still, I kind of wish that there was something, um, maybe some slight quirk or, or some, something to differentiate, differentiate these three, these three men. And that was kind of the big shortfall or shortcoming of the episode for me. Um, so yeah, so overall it was, it was a solid episode. I, I really dug the themes and, and, uh, everything I said, basically some of the reveals, but ultimately it fell just a little bit short for me. Okay, before we move on to this week's bonus review, here's a highlight from episode 167 of The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at obsessiveviewer.com. When it all comes to a head and you see the the huge big fight with everybody, <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of fun more than it is right. daunting. Yeah. And so they save the big heavy like rip your heart out conflict mm-hmm. for the conclusion of the or the, the climax of the film. I can't wait to talk about that. And that yeah. that I'm glad they did that because it made that it made that climax so much more pertinent and mm-hmm. and and heavy. Um, so I I mean I, I kind of like I kind of like the way that they didn't necessarily flesh everything out or they I, I think I think the motivations of the characters and the two opposing sides. I'm fine with it. it. While it was imperfect, I those imperfections are really not a big deal. Of course, you can find the Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at obsessiveviewer.com, and you can find the episode that you just heard a clip a clip from at obsessiveviewer.com/ov167. Okay, this week's bonus review is Queen of Outer Space from 1958. Um, I rented it on Google Play for about $2.99, so if you want to check it out, you can find it there. Um, unfortunately, like the last two episodes, this isn't available on YouTube. So, I mean, you know, we had a good run there of free entertainment. <laughs> so, it's uh, I was due to have to pay for something. Um, so a brief, a brief summary of the plot for Queen of Outer Space is, um, American astronauts are drawn by a mysterious force to the planet Venus, which they find to be inhabited only by beautiful women and their despotic queen. Um, so one of the things that I was really excited about, I was really excited that I found out about this movie because it's written by Charles Beaumont, who wrote Elegy, um, a couple years later, and both, both the movie and the episode revolve around astronauts who land in this mysterious place and encounter, you know, people that they, that are antagonizing. And it also both elegy and queen of outer space, they have a very pessimistic view of mankind and specifically men in general in queen of outer spaces. Um, uh, 
in Queen of Outer Space, basically, um, the women of Venus just hate men. And the reveal of why is actually really interesting and in- includes some pretty good makeup effects. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I will say that Queen of Outer Space was a really interesting movie. I mean, that might be giving it a little bit too much credit, actually, because I'll, I'll get into that in a second. So um, there's a like, 15-minute prologue um, before the opening credits that, it, like, the prologue leading up to the astronauts actually landing on Venus, like, this sequence had some really strong world building, and it kept me very interested. And uh, the footage of the spaceship lifting off is really impressive for the time, and the des- the design of the space station that they are flying toward um, it evoked some 2001 A Space Odyssey nostalgia for me. Uh, not to say that the two movies are remotely comparable at all, um, but it was interesting to see that design outside of Kubrick's masterpiece. So, okay, so despite the solid prologue and interesting subtext of it, the pessimistic view of mankind and what what the movie was trying to say, the movie itself, unfortunately, just devolves into this really weird male fantasy story that didn't really work for me um, past the first 20 or 30 minutes. Um, the men <laughs> the men are held captive by this, this queen of Venus, and their big plan, they decide to use their sexu- sexuality to overthrow the queen— and it it's kind of funny, but by movie's end, there's just this really this really bizarre pseudo misogynistic or maybe outwardly misogynistic um for by today's standards um resolution that just didn't work for me like at all it i don't know i i felt like I felt like Queen of Outer Space squandered a pretty cheesy but interesting premise in the end um it was still an inter- interesting movie nonetheless but that ending just didn't work for me. And uh, I guess by the premise, I'm being spoiler free here, but by the premise alone, there's not really much that uh, there isn't many different ways that this movie could have ended. So, I mean, maybe it's unfair of me to judge the movie based on its ending that harshly, but there's still this just weird cohabitating um, feel to, to the uh, resolution that just seems so, so late 1950s, early 1960s, and it's it's kind of silly and awkward. Um, so it's an interesting movie. I would recommend checking it out. I guess. Um, again, this also has some some uh, some Star Trek feel to it a little bit here and there. But um, yeah, it was okay. One noteworthy um, piece of information or piece of trivia though is that in queen of outer space one of the astronauts says um and this is a direct quote he says venus is an awful nice place to visit but i wouldn't want to live here and it's funny because that line it would later be used in elegy um basically in elegy one of the astronauts again don't know which one said it's a nice place to visit but I wouldn't want to live here. And I thought that was that was interesting to hear that in Queen of Outer Space after seeing Elegy. And I also forgot to mention in Elegy that that line, um, I don't know who wrote the episode, um, A Nice Place to Visit. Uh, it's going to be, I'm going to cover it here in about a couple months, basically, um, on Anthology. Um, but anyway, there's an episode of The Twilight Zone called A Nice Place to Visit. And I don't know if that's, I thought that was funny that, those words are in a piece of dialogue in Elegy. Um, I don't know if I'm 
reading into it, I'll know more when I when I see a nice place to visit. Anyway, that about does it for this week's episode of Anthology. Once again, I want to mention that if you're in Indianapolis, check out shocktoberandirvington.com. And also, I forgot to mention, um, once again, just just reiterating it, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was a guest on Submitted for Your Approval a Twilight Zone podcast hosted by Brandon Cruz from Apathetic Enthusiasm. And uh, I really had a lot of fun. It's episode 26. We reviewed Execution. Uh, so go find that and like uh, like submitted for your approval on Facebook and on, on uh and check out his other, and check out Brandon's other show, Apathetic Enthusiasm. Also, while you're at it, you know, if you're listening to this, go and like um, Anthology on Facebook. Because um, I like the little notifications, and I want to post more stuff on the Anthology Facebook page. But the likes are a little low, and I don't know if it's um, something that I, I want to put a lot of energy in until I have a lot of likes on there. I don't know if that makes any sense to you guys or whatever. Anyway, my voice is hoarse now, so um, I'm going to close out this episode. Uh, Next week's episode, I'm going to review episode 21 of the Twilight Zone's first season, Mirror Image. And I don't know what uh, bonus review there will be uh, for that, but I'm going to uh, check out that episode very soon and uh, go from there. So once again, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you guys next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more episodes at AnthologyPod.com. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at obsessiveviewer like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. Also check out The Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer and check out obsessivebooknerd.com, our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious... Check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.